to another episode of the Boombastic Cast. We're very happy you could all join us this evening. This is a great pleasure for us all. Alexander, how are you doing over there? I'm doing good. I'm doing good, buddy boy. That's what I like to hear. Buddy, how are you doing over there? I'm doing okay. Matt, how are you doing? Not too shabby. Alex brought you up. I felt I should at least pay knowledge, pay some respect to the king over there. So, as we venture forth into volume two, ladies and gentlemen, you know, the darkest secrets on set, you know what I mean? Volume dose. Um, the first one, a lot of crazy stuff, you know what I mean? I'm sure this is an endless voyage to the bottom of the sea of the Hollywood, you know what I mean? Heck yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of crazy shit goes down behind uh, those doors, so to speak. Is it getting no good in Hollywood? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, there's no good in Hollywood because the wood is getting given to the Hollywood. I feel you on that. I feel you. Um, you know, first up, we got a Apocalypse Now. We'll, we'll start alphabetical for the first one at least, okay? Okay. So, hey, <laughs> Apocalypse Now. You know, if anybody isn't down with Apocalypse Now, um, the great Francis Ford Coppola, you know what I mean? Uh, he wanted to make this film. This is the movie. This is like the ultimate struggle movie. There's a great documentary called Heart of Darkness, uh, based on this. It was a great struggle for him to make it. Um, I believe it was even after, it was after Godfather and they still weren't going to like fund it or whatever. And he, uh, you know, he put up all his money to make it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I think, I think he liked Morgus's house and, um, and it went over budget. It went, uh, very long. Gonna, uh, along over the uh, the time frame that was supposed to be shot. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there were a lot of issues. I mean, just just uh, the whole thing with Marlon Brando. Anybody that's familiar with, like, the famous picture of Coppola with, like, the fucking revolver to his head, which I've used it in many in my space and Facebook picture in my day, let me tell you. Um, that's, it's from the, the set of Apocalypse Now where, yeah, he put up all his funds and it was really, uh, like a do or die situation. What do you think, Ogman? Yeah, um, I know that there was a lot of things that, I mean, it went way over budget. He had to put all, all his money into it. Um, I mean, well, uh, there's so many, like, dark things that happened behind on the scenes on this thing. Uh, one one of the uh, biggest ones that I think a lot of people know about is first of all, you know, he wanted to bring in Marlon Brando uh, mm-hmm. to be in this because he was uh, great in The Godfather. They had already worked together, and uh, and of course Marlon Brando is such a big name that you know even though there's a lot of big names in Apocalypse Now, a lot of them weren't as big. As Marlon Brando, they were they were up and coming, but they really hadn't hit their huge strides yet. Yeah. And so I think the deal with Marlon Brando was he agreed to shoot like let's say three or four days, and it had to be a million dollars a day. And if those days come up and they had to push back or they couldn't do it, they still had to pay him the million dollars a day. And then an additional million dollars on any day past the three or four days that he already agreed to. Yeah. So, okay, you're already dropping a shitload of money there. 
Secondly, uh, Brando, you know, shows up and he is, he's big. He, he really let himself go. And of course, uh, Coldblood's plan was to, you know, this was supposed to be a military guy, you know, in, in good shape and all that. But when, when he saw Brando like that, he was like, okay, that's okay. We can switch this around. We can say that he's got native. He's like indulged in all the pleasures in the world. He sees himself as a god, you know, so he's eating all he wants. He's, you know, let himself go. And, and the thing is, Marlon Brando, was extremely self-conscious about how he looked. Yeah. So he didn't want to be shown hardly at all. The reason that his scenes were shot in the dark, which ended up being a very cool uh, symbolic way of shooting his scenes, wasn't at first Coppola's like, ooh, great, great idea for the scene. It was the fact that Marlon Brando wanted to hide his big bulky body. And then, you know, first of all, Coppola had to work around that and shoot this within the four days because otherwise, if he didn't, he'd owe so much more money, which he was already, you know, overstretched as it was. Yeah, yeah. The documentary is real cool. I definitely suggest it. You know, we won't we won't talk about too deep into, you know, some of the crazy things, you know, incredible, you know, like that, that weather w- was like horrifying to him, you know what I mean? But also, you know, uh, Marty had a heart attack, you know what I mean? Yeah, Mr. Martin Sheen. I guess Charlie didn't uh, inherit his tiger blood from his father. Well, I'd be willing to tell you that there was plenty of tiger blood being spilled on the set of fucking Martin Sheen movies. That's okay. back when the time, I think that, I think that fucking Charlie Sheen might have that tiger blood because Papa Sheen had that tiger blood, and 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 he I think he comes from a long line of tiger blood. You know what I mean? It's just it's more public. Everybody's in the media now, so it's more public. I feel, but yeah, dude, I think Marty was partying like a motherfucker. I know in the documentary the dude was smoking like insane amounts of cigarettes. You know what I mean? Well, I know in the famous scene, I know. I, I know in the famous scene where he's like psyching himself, he's front of the mirror and he actually breaks the mirror that uh, he method act. He was like drunk off his ass during that scene. Yeah, that is true fact. Yeah. Are you like to have a drink or two? I heard on the set of that, making that scene. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, if you haven't seen the documentary or the movie, you def- anybody out there, definitely go check that out. That really is a masterpiece. The documentary is probably one of the best, documentaries about making a movie that I've ever seen. There's a lot of good ones out there, and that's right at the top of the pile. Thank you. But I think that Tiger Blood's inherited for sure. Uh, and Marty Sheen, I think Marty Sheen passed, didn't he? No, no, Marty Sheen's okay, still right. around. Uh, yeah, he's still around respect. as far as I know. Much respect, much respect. Next up, you know, I think we, we got a, a film. They got a nice... Nice video game coming for this soon, I heard. Um, they announced the other day that a, like a Killer Clowns from Out of Space video games in the works are on its way. And uh, I have the system. And the only new games I buy are these movies when I can't not buy them. I bought that Evil Dead movie uh, game, rather. And uh, I haven't got too deep into it yet. But 
it fucking it was good times from what I did play it. Um, but I buy you know you put out a fucking horror movie video game, I'm gonna buy it. That's just kind of how it goes. Texas Chainsaw Massacre getting its own video game uh, sooner than later too, uh, very soon. But I know Hawkman. You, how are you feeling about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? We don't really get too big into the horror on the show with your taste. Hey, 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 dude, dude, we've had this conversation. I know that I might be late to the party, but I have become a a fan of the genre. I do, I do enjoy horror movies now. I mean, I didn't uh, really get into them in my younger years, but I would say in the last uh, uh, 10 years, I started really getting into, you know, horror movies and doing research and, and watching these things, and that I enjoy them. I mean, I would consider myself a horror fan now. I mean, I mean, is it wrong that I didn't grow up in fake blood, and, and can, can I become a fan later in life? I mean, is there a law I had to be fan as soon as I came out of the womb? I mean, come on, dude. Yeah. But, I, yeah, I mean, the thing is... Um, <laughs> Did I really get into, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre? No, I wasn't a huge, huge fan of that film. I mean, but I do, uh, you know, I do have respect for, for the film itself and for the director. Uh, much respect to Toby Hooper. Oh, yeah. uh, he, the day he passed was uh, yesterday, actually. You know, to bring it into current time. you'll hit, People will hear this later, but, yeah, yesterday, good old uh, August 26, 2017, we lost Tobe. Which that sucks, you know. Um, time kind of flies, man. Time, I, you know, that's a. But yeah, very, very unfortunate. You know what I mean? That right there is a curse of itself to ever lose Toby Hooper. You know, that's that's the biggest fucking darkest secret of them all. And unfortunately, the public knows now. I blame you, Hog, for us having to bring it to the people like that. But on the set, they all got sick the last day or two of shooting, you know what I mean? Since the house was full of bones and the macabre decorations, uh, which were made from real bones, it really kind of, it made for, uh, you know, the, the group, the, the, the animal rights people wouldn't be happy with this, and the people, the hazardous waste people wouldn't be happy with this. You would be getting cracked down. Um, well, it's I, I'm... Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's funny because now I I do have to admit we didn't have a scene quite like in Texas Chainsaw Massacre with dead animal parts and all that. But we did do a film where we had some, you know, like raw meat and all that and we spread it around. And it wasn't even during our hot days of summer. It was more like during the winter months. But even in that small confined room, it it became extremely, you know, how should I say, uh, <laughs> rancid smell. So you can only imagine. I mean, you take that, you put that in a hot Texas sun, and uh, when the, with no ventilation, it it's just asking to get you know people vomiting on the sides and wanting to pass out. They also lit up a bunch of dead animals on fire. Which for anybody out there that's ever smell even burning hair, the burning fear, uh, fur, I assume to smell like burning hair, and I've smelled some burning hair. Don't ask me why, uh, <laughs> but that's that's foul stenching. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. Uh, a body, you know, it is a body. Even they're animals, man. They, they got bodies too, just like everybody else. You know what I mean? Uh, I'm sure it's a stink the same way. I, I assume that a human body would be some stanking stuff. I don't. Don't ask me why I know these things. I don't want to be. I can't be accused of anything crazy over here. But that's enough, you know, to make your vomitos up. And then you add all like, you know, it's just some crazy, some crazy environmental stuff there. Um, rest in respect to Toby Hooper, man. Toby Hooper was such a super talent. Um, I remember when we interviewed with um, Billy Bob, you know, your boy, Joe Bob. Joe Bob Briggs. Joe Bob Briggs. Yeah. Uh, that'll have to be fixed. So pause goes there. I remember when we interviewed with Joe Bob Briggs. Um, he, it was right around the time <clears throat> that, that Toby passed away to that, in 2007, 10. And uh, we got to hear, you know, some good stories about Tobe. And, you know, the, the, you know, the business was always tough on Toby, you know, where, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get into that in a different episode. But, yeah, definitely, uh, it's definitely sad, you know, and he definitely passed way too young, you know. I mean, you see a lot of his colleagues and his, and his peers of his age and stuff that are still kicking it, you know what I mean? It's a real, rather unfortunate, you know. Now we're about to step into the film that's probably the most, you know, got the 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 boobs around it, the scariness, as much you 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 figured it would, you know, a film like this <clears throat> of this magnitude. Uh, is something that if I, you know, like I said, my, with my upbringing, I would think that, you know, how can this even make its way? How can every, anybody still be alive after making a film like this? The Exorcist. You know what I mean? William Friedkin's masterpiece. William Friedkin, you know, God bless William Friedkin. I'm, I'm so happy we still got him. And he's still making great movies. The last time I checked out one of his movies, it was great. You know, you know, The French Connection, of course. But also he did like that bug movie with Michael Shannon and Judd. Um, and then he also did um, Killer Joe with McConaughey and um, the dude from Living in the Wild, whatever that movie is. Yeah. Savages, I think he's in Savages or Afro Dog, one of those movies. The um, That that movie is great, you know what I mean? That Killer Joe movie is fantastic and Bug was great. Um, yeah, a lot of, yeah, so much love for that, but you know, of course, The Exorcist had so many weird people were dying. All types of crazy stuff was going down. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean you. Uh, I mean, there's there's actually um, two things I can think of uh, about The Exorcist uh, that really uh, come to mind. Is one that uh, Linda Blair actually actually uh, because of some of the stuff she did on set actually caused to get uh, scoliosis. I mean, if you can believe that, which I'm not surprised. I mean, because, I mean, this is before the time of CGI. So when she's doing that, like, crab walk and... That crab, that's the first thing that popped in my head. Yeah. That, that wasn't in, I don't think that was in the original film. Like, the spider walked all, yeah. the spider walk down the stairs. I feel like that wasn't in the original cut. I think that was, like, something that they added to uh, later like in the 90s almost or something like that. I remember getting a cut, like a DVD. I remember it being a big deal that that was like in it. You know what I mean? Um, 
But yeah, that crab walk, dude, that spider walk, whatever you want to call it, that's harsh times, dude. It's a horrifying visual. They probably thought that scene would have fucking killed people because it was like yeah. so and, and you know I mean, what I mean? That movie's that movie already had people fucking crying, throwing up, probably threatening to burn down cinemas, you know. Oh, yeah. That movie was heavy duty when you want to come to offended people. We thought yeah. we were talking about offensive films before we were watching uh Postal, great film by Yui Bull. Um and we got to talking about offensive films and shit that really makes an audience stand up and shout. And The Exorcist had all of those ingredients in it because it was just the really like religion at that time was definitely something you you don't you don't, you tread very lightly. You know, it's very different now. Like Exorcist is, would be culturally more accepted now, but back in the the fucking seventies when that came out, that was uh, harsh living. Yeah, I mean the thing is that. Uh... The Exorcist. Uh, I, mean, I mean, when when you're dealing with the supernatural or the demonic, they say satanic um, issues. A lot of people always put the fact that whenever you deal with those kind of issues, that you're kind of cursing yourself on set. I mean, right. you look at a lot of uh, horror movies that delve into similar kind of themes or and all that. That they seem to have a lot of bad luck now. You can argue whether that is because of uh, the subject matter, or you can argue that it's just making movies. I mean, when you make movies of many different genres and types, there are always problems on set. I mean, Matt and I talked to uh, Larry Hankin about Home Alone, and there was a lot of problems on that set. And that had nothing to do with any uh, devil worshipping, at least as far as we know. Yeah. But another thing, another kind of uh, weird thing that The Exorcist has um, on set is that it actually had a real-life murderer as an extra. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, The guy's name was uh, Paul Bateson. He was like a former radiographer. Yeah. And he was uh, also uh, a movie extra in... Uh, uh, in uh, one of in uh, one of the doctor's scenes, yeah. and and it's kind of uh, it's kind of ironic, I would say, that you have a movie like The Exorcist, and you end up having a guy as an extra who's actually a real life murderer. Which you know, you can argue that it added to the feng shui of the of the uh, um of the movie set that uh, added moving it towards a more negative environment than a positive environment. Well, it's true. And even if, you know, even if let's say not nothing, let's say nothing, there is nothing this, you know, in the aspects of religion, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a believer in energy and, 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 and stuff like that. So like, yeah, I almost feel like if you get enough people believing in something, I think something could manifest from that in itself. Open doors, maybe allow some presence to come in or something like that. Something wild, um, but some very crazy stuff. Yeah, there was uh, numerous deaths. I think those two deaths while making. I don't think any of them were on set. I think they were all, I think they were like post-production deaths, but I could be wrong. Um, But yeah, you you know, Linda Blake got super freaky. Uh, for, after after the success of this, Rick James wanted to be running around with The Exorcist. You know what I mean? 
Ricky James was super freaking. Did you know that fun fact? She ran with she ran with Rick James for a little bit. Yeah. I think she had some dark years where she was drooging and drinking and doing all types of bad things, and um, she was rolling with the super freak. That was uh, you know the super freak smokes some crack rocks, no big deal. Cocaine's hell of a drug, you know what I mean? Yeah, tell me, bud. But the one good thing I can say about the Exorcist in closing that the great Eileen Deeds. You know what I mean? Played Pazuzu, the face, oh, yeah. uh, in Boombastic Films production of GPS uh, in post-production now. So we'll give that a shout-out to uh, go Ray Booten, uh directorial debut. Nice, nice film and some scary shtick. The man from the paranormal brings some real-deal paranormal to you guys' table out there. So be on the looks out. Uh, what do we got next up there, Hawkman? Uh, next, uh, there's a movie called Shark. Now, yeah. uh, it, uh, when it came out, it was, uh, they were hoping that it would rival, uh, rival, uh, um, Jaws, mm-hmm. but, uh, it, it ended up being nothing more than a footnote. But it does have one, uh, one, um, uh, reason to even, uh, uh talk about, which is why it's on this list, is that, um, uh, unfortunately, a stuntman was actually attacked and killed by a shark on set. And what even makes it worse is that the promotional images that were uh, used in Life magazine showcase, uh, actually showcased the real attack instead of the staged ones. So, so not only do you have a a uh, a, a poor guy who lost his life. Um, uh, doing doing a, a stunt on a film that ended up, I mean, I don't, I've never seen it, and I only know of it because of this list, and 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 the fact that not only that, but his death actually ended up being publicized as a promotional material, which probably added to why this film didn't do that well, even though it starred the uh, late great uh, Burt Reynolds. Directed by the great Samuel Fuller, you know, rest in peace to him as well as Burt Reynolds, you know, Shot Corridor, The White Dog, which we've talked about on the show a lot with the racist dog. It's kind of, that's a crazy movie because, you know, it's about a racist dog, but it's got like heart. The movie, you'll make you think, you know, it's one of those things. It's racism's wrong type thing. That's the vibe of it, of course. But like the way they do it is like really well done. I've always, you know, appreciated that one. Uh, the big red one, of course, and uh, the fucking Naked Kiss. You know, I know Naked Kiss and Shock Corridor. I got the Criterion collections of those going. But yeah, rest in peace to Fuller and Burt Reynolds. Very tragic stuff. Um, I got the VHS of it. You know what I mean? If the, I didn't realize there was real footage uh, of death in there. So I pro- you probably won't be getting that. You better grab a copy of that before that's gone forever. Um, but definitely... Yeah, shark. It's worth seeing. I'm. I remember watching it once, and uh, you know, for the, I watched it mainly because it was, you know, the fuller flick back when I was like, you know, like I said before, like when I really started realizing like filmmaking was something I wanted to do instead of you know the schooling deal. I would like study film, so I'd just go buy people's. If I was became a fan of somebody, seen something I liked, I got interested, and I'd just like go buy their whole kind of filmography and then work through it. And I remember that being like one of his fun ones. 
But, uh, yeah, you know, whenever you're dealing with sharks, man, you got to be careful because there's big trouble that could be had. I'm just like the next one, which I remember, Alexander Hawk, I sent you a video of this from the YouTube that you might have seen it before, but I didn't up until this when I seen that video on the tube um, a, a year or so back, maybe more. And, uh, of course, it was the Chris Farley doing the Shrek voice, you know what I mean, before Mike Myers did it, um, which I, you know, you're, I, you know, Mike Myers, of course, everybody knows is Shrek. And when they think of him, you know, if they're going to think of Shrek, they're going to think of Mike Myers. But it's crazy that Chris Farley, the great Legion, you know, died way before his time, wanted to grow like his hero, the Belouche man, and he did. Um, very cra- very fucking sad situation. But, you know, the, the story of this is that, yeah, he started doing the voice, uh, the voiceover stuff for Shrek, and then he kind of died before they finished it, so they had Mike Myers pop in and uh, finish it up for him. But there's stuff out there on YouTube that you can go check out and you can see, uh, like, sketches of Shrek, or, like the pictures of Shrek with the voice or, like, the, the way Shrek was going to look when it was Chris Farley sketches or something like that. But what do you got to say about the, the Chris Farley Shrek deal? Well, I mean, the thing is that, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I was talking to Matt and he uh, and I both uh, talked about uh, about that. And I actually I actually heard about uh, Chris Farley um, was going to do Shrek. And then, of course, unfortunately, he died uh, in the middle of that. And then, of course, Mike Myers had to uh, come in and replace him. But um, another thing about Chris Farley, which... Um, is another kind of, you can call it whether it's a coincidence or a curse or something like that, but he was attached to another movie uh, that was supposed to be a, a, a biopic, a biopic mm. on Fatty Arbuckle. Now, Fatty Arbuckle was a comedian during the silent era, during Charlie Chaplin times, that was very popular. Now, Fatty Arbuckle, this is how the story goes. He was at a party. This was during a time when a lot of uh, people were thinking that Hollywood and and those kind of people were, you know, just uh, uh, bad examples for, you know, the common folk and all that. And the thing is, he found a woman. More so right today. Yeah, more so (laughs) right today. But during that time, there were more religious groups that uh, wanted to find someone to prosecute. Yeah. And the thing is, Fatty Arbuckle, by all accounts, and this is by people who knew him, he was a great guy, very nice. He went to a party, and he ended up finding a woman who was extremely inebriated. She looked like she needed help, and she wasn't doing well. Mm-hmm. So he took it upon himself to take her to the hospital to hopefully get her better. And unfortunately, she died. And there was a lot of um, uh, rumors that Fatty Arbuckle did something that led to her death. And because of that, uh, the religious groups targeted him. It's pretty much it was cancel culture of the time. They wanted to like uh, destroy him and make sure that his movies weren't seen. So a lot of his films were destroyed. And that's why it's hard to find some Fatty Arbuckle movies. Now, finally, uh, after a while, with the help of, like, Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, 
he was able to prove his innocence, but the damage had already been done, and he was able to do a few movies before he passed on, but he never got back to the um, level of success that he was at. Now, going back to uh, not only Chris Farley, but John Belushi, I also even think John Candy, all three of these guys were picked to be Fatty Arbuckle in a Fatty Arbuckle uh, biopic. And that biopic never has happened, and I haven't heard anything about it since. But but every time they got attached to it, they died uh, shortly afterwards. So you can also argue that maybe maybe there's a little bit of a curse behind the Fatty Arbuckle name. Caught that Fatty Arbuckle disease. Now that's the that was like the first ever cancel culture type vibe out there. Oh my god! Oh my god, Matt! I just got an email from Steven Spielberg. Oh he yeah, he wants me to play Fatty Arbuckle. No, I'm having a oh, heart attack. I'm dying. Oh no, I'm dying. You got you got to take it over for me, Matt. You have to you have to you have to be Fatty Arbuckle now. I'll do that for you. Thanks, dude. I'm gonna call my agent before I call the ambulance for you, and then if he <laughs> thinks it's right, we'll move forward. Um, yeah, you know, Fatty Arbuckle. I I feel like back in the day, that's when really dark stuff would happen. I don't know where that story of him helping a girl at a party came from. I think that could be the truth, just as much as him having a girl at his wherever in a hotel or something that he had an issue and he had to get rid of. You know what I mean? And you bring it, you know, overdose, drank too you, much. You, you can, deal. you can always count on my buddy to a bat to always look at the dark thing. You know that the, well, I know it's this? hard to, I know that it's hard to believe. I know that we live in a society where good people are dead. There's no yeah. good people in the world. We all know this. Everyone's yeah. evil. Everyone's bad. We know this, man. But there might have been a time back then that there were some decent people. Nowadays, they're all dead, they're all gone, but, you know, there, there was a time that there might have been some decent people. So what was this evidence that was proven that he didn't do this act? I know you said that they... I, I don't... The opinion of his I, friends, or... I, I don't know off the top of my head. I right. mean, I read an article we're talking about, like, five years ago. So I don't remember exactly what, what it said about the exonerating proof, but it was proved that he was not the one involved in her death. And, of course, after that, it didn't matter that he was exonerated. People had already made up their minds. So, you know, his entire career and and, and all that was destroyed. So he had to eke out a, a measly living afterwards and then, you know, died in obscurity. Well, as, as respect for the deceased, I'm going to have to say that he probably did it. <laughs> so, park the fatty Arbuckle sees. Here comes Noah's Ark, baby, cruising on down the path, radio blasting, wind in everybody's hair, man and animal. Uh, what you know? They, the birds were on there too. It was very nice. It was a very good deal. Um, Noah's Ark, the biblical story. You know, back in the day, the, these biblical stories were so huge and bombastic, if you will, that you're not blown away when you hear about people getting caught up in it. The same way the Wizard of Oz, you know, there's so many people working that, that like when people get hurt or die, sadly, it's um, it's not mind-blowing, you know what I mean? Well, Every now, 
Yeah, you still hear about every now and then. Unfortunately, um, with the, the the rust incident, I remember a couple of years before that, there was a, on one of the Transformer movies. I think somebody got like, you know, deceased. We'll sit new. They got deceased up. Um, very uh, unfortunate stuff, of course. So the the volumes will never end, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I mean the thing is that first of this, this Noah's Ark movie was 1928. Mm. Okay, and what that really uh, boils down is it's very early on in the uh, filming uh, history, and and the fact is not just that time, but I think all the way through like thirties uh, and the forties, you know, uh, the idea of safety on set wasn't a huge priority. It was kind of like anything to get the shot. Now. In the Noah's Ark thing, they, uh, there was the big flood scene and three extras were killed, uh, because of it. And of course, I mean, at that time, I mean, safety was not, um, not like it is today. I mean, you have things like what happened on the Rust sets and Crow and, and other sets that are more recent that horrible things happen and people do end up getting killed on them. But there are safety measures in place to try to limit and try to negate that. But during, like, the early days, there wasn't any of that. It was kind of like, hey, we're going to do a flood scene, okay? This just pour as much water as we can with random people and, you know, cross our fingers that no one dies. But in this case, three people did. I mean, I remember I was reading an article when you watch the old noir movies, like with Cagney and, and all that, and they're shooting guns, okay, there was no CGI. They were literally shooting real guns, and they're just aiming to miss the people they're supposed to be shooting at. So the fact is that, you know, nowadays with CGI and all that, we can uh, skip around, like, uh, things to limit the uh, chances of, fatalities. But uh, during that time, it was like, hey, that's, I have a great idea for a scene. Let's do it. But they could die. Eh, That's okay. They're insured. You know, especially with the big flooding stuff and a big boat set and stuff like that. A fun lesson for about there. 1928, um, the most common ways of dying would be major cardiovascular renal diseases diseases of the cardiovascular system and the the symptoms uh, of being senile and ill-defined conditions and all other ineffective and parasitic diseases. So that, that was your, that was the most common things you were passing out from back in nine, nine, 28. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a tough time to be a G out there. You know what I mean? But three people were killed there in the big flood scene. I'm not completely blown away by that because, you know, back then, you know, there, but there's they, the stunts were more dangerous. There weren't stuntmen. It was regular people doing them. You know, they're on a set. I don't think people think I had enough. Maybe they did back then to realize that, okay, if we, if we shoot this, the water shoots this person, unfortunately, by chance into this cubby hole and it fills up with water. Are they going to be able to get out of there? And if they thought about it, they'd go, nah, there ain't no way they're getting out of there before. And the next thing you know, 
they got dead people on their hands. You know what I mean? So like, I'm I'm not surprised. And six hundred thousand gallons, you said? Yeah, something Ooh. like that. Holy macaroni! Well, I mean, also this was a time when the uh, child labor was okay, sending like nine year old kids into the middle of a machine to fix a, a a messed up gear, and if the gear ends up ripping off the kid's hand, well, oh well, he has two of them. He can use an, He can live his life with one hand. Did you also bring up the fact that uh, the extras didn't know it was coming? It was their unsuspecting. Um, I might not have said that, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised because I don't think those in charge, um, give the ex, because at that time you have a lot of people looking for any way to make money, a lot of desperate people. So they're like, Hey, want to be on the movie set, make some money so you can feed your kids. Oh, what? I didn't tell you that we're going to drop a gallon, uh, 600 gallons of water on you and you got to cross your fingers and hope you don't drown? No, they're going to be like, hey, come on here. You want your money? Go stand here. Look like you're drowning. Because you are. <laughs> Dude, it's horrible stuff. You know, the the unsuspecting part's cool, too, because if you got a dude there and he's like, let's say, you, you, you know, you're holding your breath for whatever reason or you were, you know, you just took a bit, you just fucking finished saying a big gigantic uh, telling somebody the story of your life or whatever, as people like to do on set, you know, when the cameras aren't rolling. And then you got no breath left in your lungs, and all of a sudden you get this tsunami of fucking death coming at you. And now it's just over. It's over, San Rover. You know what I mean? The Grim Reaper came strolling, grabbed your hand, kissed your cheek, and you guys drifted off into the sunset. Uh, crazy vibes. Uh, water yeah. freaks me out big time anyways. That tsunami deal, as he, as I've talked about on the show, is horrifying. Shit. Um, yeah. I guess if you were like the Zodiac killer or something, and you had him roaming through your area, you know what I mean? You, uh, you wouldn't have to worry about tsunamis as much. You'd have to worry about him taking you out the game, blading you up. I believe he's a blade man, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's uh, in this case on Zodiac, it shows that even the big stars can uh, feel uh, uh, feel a little pissed off and and rebel, so to speak. And uh, the guy we're talking about is Mr. Robert Downey Jr., Mr. Iron Man himself. I guess that uh, he was a little upset with the director, and uh, he decided that he was going to uh, store his piss in jars around the set. I mean. I think that's a little, you know, not quite, uh, quite, uh, how should I say, um, uh, kosher. <laughs> oh, uh, oh, yeah, I like that. RDJ, man. And maybe he was method acting. Was it his character an alcoholic? I, uh, could be. Um, very alcoholic thing to do, I, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I do know that uh, his biggest complaint was the shooting length and the requirements, just kind of, you know, just, just uh, pissed him off, and and this was you know during a time when uh, he uh, he wasn't he was a big name, but he wasn't the huge superstar he is now. Our DJ is fucking legendary, dude. We, me, and you have a mutual friend that actually hangs with him. Not that not that that means anything or that's cool in any way because we don't hang with them. 
But it'd be super cool to hang with fucking RDJ. Because when you think about it, dude, you need to get Rodney's stories from way back. You got all those, like, 80s movies that he was a part of. And then all the way up now here. You know what I mean? It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It'd be nice. Um, I, he, I Hopefully, we'll get him on the show in the future. And then also distant future. Hey, it, just, as, just as long as he doesn't uh, st- uh, st- uh, bring a jar of his own piss along with well, us. I think that was method acting. I think. Yeah. I think that he was getting into I, it. I haven't watched Zodiac. In a well, long I mean, from from what I read, it was all about that he was upset with the director. I guess oh, really? he didn't allow, uh, you know, uh, he didn't allow as many uh, bathroom breaks or something like that. And uh, RDJ's way of um, pretty much giving him the middle finger was to you know whip it out on set, fill up a jar, and just leave it in the corner somewhere. That's interesting. If that's the take, that's interesting. But, um, yeah, what can you do? Uh, Zodiac, I haven't watched it in a little bit. It's a masterpiece. Uh, I'm not hating on it anyway. I really think it's one of Fincher's greatest films, you know. Um, and, I, you know, the, 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 the soundtrack's fantastic. The use of Hurdy Gurdy, man, is fucking incredible. Um, you know, they, it's, they keep it very... Uh, open you know it doesn't go too crazy with it it's based off, i think it's based off there's a really great zodiac book i've never read it but i heard always heard great things i gotta pick it up one of these days about uh you know the zodiac killer and that whole the whole and i don't think he was ever found you know what i mean which is kind of nuts oh no no he he was never found don't tell me don't tell me how you know that bubba uh, you know what i mean well i mean zodiac. since you know since uh i'm i'm here you're my buddy and and of course, I have a uh, have a lot of respect for our fans. I thought I'd come out and say that yes, I am the Zodiac Killer. Um, I I decided to you know change uh, change my look uh, and um, and get born a few decades afterwards. But you know, maybe you reincarnated. Ah, you found out the truth. Actually, I'm just a soul that transferred from one body to another body. So we'll end with anybody out there who's never seen Zodiac. Peep that tonight because master. I might even watch that tonight. That's how much of a masterpiece it is. It's been that long. It's a little lengthy, um, but it's all good in the hood. You'll you'll appreciate it. Now it's all. It's got to be on like Amazon or the Flicks or something. Um, and if not, just you know, go buy the Blu-ray or whatever. The 4K. They probably 4K of it by now. The Blu-ray was always cheap. I remember. Um. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. I don't get down fully with having pee around. <laughs> um, hey, hey, Matt, Matt, come on, come on. You do know. I mean, we have done some lengthy podcasts, some episodes that keep on going, and, you oh, know, yeah. especially with interviewers and interviewees, and, you know, we, we've all got theirs where we, 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 we need to go to the bathroom, but we can't. I mean, they're not saying we've done it. But we all have the the desire. We all have the desire to take care of the issue without leaving the podcast. Well, I'm definitely surrounded by pish jugs right now. I just didn't want to talk about it. Uh, that's okay, dude. And the funny it. thing is, none of those pish jugs are his. That's unfortunate. That's the unfortunate yes. part. But, you know, before we get any deeper in, I want to depart from this conversation. I want to <laughs> pop into a film that... You know, it should be close to our hearts for multiple reasons. Um, you know, one of the biggest, one of the biggest unfortunate things 
I'm trying to remember back. This was shot in Boston is where I'm going with this. This is the, the departed Martin Scorsese's masterpiece, you know, very good. Uh, at the time, that was like, I remember there being not really anything good coming out quality-wise at that time. You know, we've we've seen some slumps in quality. You know, some directors always bring it, like Scorsese always does. Um, but like I said, shot in Boston, I was originally going for the fact that you know, it could have, they were probably looking for extras, you know what I mean? I know for Shutter Island, I remember them looking for extras. And one, it's kind of one regret that I have is that, and I've done the extra game once for Here Comes the Boom. And it's fun, you know what I mean? You know, if you like the movie making deal, you get to see kind of the big boys do it. And uh, it's kind of a cool environment type deal. Um, But like, I, I really regret not signing up to try and be an extra on the departed or, or fucking well I, I mean I mean I mean the thing you gotta understand now I don't know if just to see him work you know what I mean well I don't know if if you signed up or I signed up that we would have gotten the chance I do know um especially around here I mean I can only say about the Boston area yeah and I'm sure that's the case with like all other places but you know it's uh, unfortunately, I myself never seem to be able to play the political game, um, and because of that, never really got a chance to do any uh, extra work on any bigger films. I did uh, uh, well, Paul Blood Mall Cop, and that was a joke within itself. That's funny. But, we, both, we both only did one big Hollywood extra movie and bounced out the game. That's funny. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is that they treat you like crap, and... Uh, and uh, they, they, you know, they, they, they uh, make it like what they're doing for you is a service to you. That you have to be uh, grateful and you know take the beatings uh, that they give you for no apparent reason. Um, yeah, I mean, I would have loved to have been on The Departed, but I also learned very quickly that if you were to get any like actual decent in the background uh, work in Boston, you have to be extremely friendly with those in charge. And if you weren't close enough to someone in charge, then, you know, you're going to spend all the time maybe offset waiting for your name to be called and, you know, and nothing usually happens. No, I'm with you. So. I, um, yeah, I did that one time. We did it like three, we did like three days of it. Uh, We were in multiple parts of the movie. I, it was one of those deals. If you don't get like, I guess if you don't get a like a steady job and you have chunks or off or whatever, you don't work or whatever. It's it's a good deal because it's in the middle of the day. That's the only thing that kind of sucks about it. Like I do it now, but you got to work and shit. You know what I mean? Well, I mean the thing they, is, I mean the thing is, they won't tell you if you have a gig uh, more than like a day or maybe two days before they want you there. Right. And of course, their their opinion is that well, if you truly want it, you'll just you know call in sick. Uh, you just don't show up at your job. And you know, I mean, it's one thing when you're living in California where there's movies and TV shows every every two feet, so I feel like you I'm can literally that. make your job as an extra. But like in New England, like in Boston, you can't really make your living as an extra here. And you know. And occasionally there'll be like one or two people from the area that they're shooting that they'll, you know, give bigger roles because they happen to be 
in a big role in another film that happened, you know, years ago. But uh, unfortunately, it's, that's that's how it, how it, how the game is played. It's fun if you if you're a fan of film. I think it's fun to do once. Um, and like I said, I wouldn't want to just go do anything. But like if Scorsese came around or somebody I really respected that. I thought that might be the only time for me to ever be able to kind of see him work and be a part of one of his films. And like, I do kind of wish that I fucking hopped on, you know, Shutter Island. I remember definitely Shutter Island. I don't, the departed might've been, I don't know if I was kind of in tune with, you know, the Boston castings and such and all the bigger casting deals at that time. But, um, that was a movie that gave me a nice shot in the arm being like a filmmaker from Boston, like starting out around that time, like seriously, I guess. And seeing him come to our city and make a movie was pretty cool. Um, you know, it was like having a gun pulled on you kind of deal where you go, Ooh, this feels real. This feels good. Now I bring that up because Leo got a real gun pulled on him in the film by, of course, the great Jack Nicholson, who I believe retired now. It wasn't anything public, but I think he's retired. Yeah, he he retired, I think, about, I think it's now been like uh, more than five years. But recently, he just uh, came out as suffering from, I think, like Alzheimer's or, oh, or, or, or something like that. Nicholson's I think a I, legend, dude. Yeah. I love him. But, uh, but, I mean, the thing is that, you know, like Matt said, he's a legend. And and the fact is that um like it uh like uh we're talking about he pulled out a real gun on Leo that he wasn't expecting. So so uh Leo actually uh he wasn't acting in that scene, he actually was, you know, a little freaked out that now you had Jack Nicholson waving a real live gun and with old Jackie, sometimes you don't know whether he's acting or he's really crazy at the moment. <laughs> yeah. But, the scene, like thinking back on the scene, it does have kind of a weird vibe to it. You know what I mean? I think that like that weird element's probably the fact there's a gun there. I never picked up on a, you know, um, but I think it could either have been, it could have been for both of them. You know what I mean? You're going to react better to a real gun in the same way that, you know, Jack would react better holding a real gun. You know what I mean? And uh, I can call him Jack because we're close like that. <laughs> and uh, so it could be, I wonder who it was actually for, or if it was for both of them, you know what I mean? Um, very dangerous. I'm sure there was no bullets in it, of course. That thing that thing had to have been checked fucking literally probably a hundred times. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, and it's, you know, it ain't the... It, it, you know, whoever they had checking, the, the people that worked guns on this should have been working on that Russ film. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. I'm very curious to see what the, where that goes with her, what her future is. The the gun gun tech on Rust. Yeah. Not that I wish bad for anybody, but I'm very curious to kind of where the cards fall on that. But the the gun, I don't, you know, only Scorsese man can get away with that, I guess. Both actors would have to be comfortable. I really think that it was... I think that it was it was suggested or requested by one of the actors. I don't I don't think I think if anything if if, if Scorsese you know pulled the trigger so to speak on that that like uh, strategy for the scene uh, the, the actors I feel had to have been like look it would be better 
it would feel realer if I could hold a gun or if he had a real gun on me. And Scorsese was probably like, what? All right. You know what I mean? But uh, much respect. And his reaction is uh, 100% authentic. You know what I mean? Yeah. Only Jimmy LeBlanc could have done a better job than Leo DiCaprio <laughs> in The Departed, which I would love to have seen. Our buddy Jimmy out there, shout out if you're listening. The Birds. Before Stanley Kubrick brought misery and stress to the folks on set with Shelley Duvall tormenting her, and I've realized I'm a very bad person for um, thinking that that was all right in the slightest. I've changed my way. I'm in counseling, and uh, I'm working my I'm working my way through that. Um, but that's you know, okay. That's yeah. okay. He's doing the ten uh, step program. I'm there with him all the way. I mean, it's one of those things. Sometimes uh, you got you gotta you gotta you know know where to stand, right? <laughs> Chisel, especially when guns are around. Now, the Hitch himself, Hitchcock, the legend. Uh, this is a very famous one where you know. I've always heard about this since the beginning of time, you know, and this, this goes back to putting your, your actor in a vulnerable situation. Um, now this is coming from a man who once I believe called actors cattle. If I remember correctly, I think Hitch felt that way about, uh, actors very different time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but he meant that with love. He with liked, love he loved burgers and he loved, you know, the smell of burning cow meat. So, right, right. so it was, was pure love that, that he referred to uh, his actors as cattle. Well, that's one of those things, you know what I mean? But uh, the famous The Birds, which I don't quite put The Birds in his, you know. People like to think that some of it. I don't put that in his top three. You know what I mean? We'll probably get in a, a check in the gate on Hitchy, Hitchy in the future, so we, I won't spill no beans. But uh, I think it was Tippy, Tippy Hedren, I believe, was the one that got the cruel behavior of uh, having those real birds thrown in her face. Yeah. Which, you know, I don't think they were clipping claws. Uh, unfortunately, you know what I mean. So uh, they weren't tipping claws over there. So, whoo, that could have been that could have been that could have been some real shit. I believe there's in the scene there's blood on her face and stuff like that. Yeah. It's quite possible that. Some of that blood was real. If that's the case, I I definitely don't support that. If you're that you're she's an actor and you're gonna fuck up her face forever with a scar, that's horrifying. You know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah, um, that's I'm, very dangerous just to throw around. Bird. Even with the beak, the the fucking claws. There's so much that could go wrong with that situation. Yeah, I mean the thing is that I mean we also all know about. Supposedly that uh, Alfred had a huge thing for Tippy Hedren that, you know, there were uh, rumors of him stalking her and making her life miserable. And, uh, oh, really? and that, yeah, I mean, and, and the fact that uh, she really didn't have much of a career after um, after the birds, I think. I mean, but he and, finished her off, I huh? dag. Yeah, and, and the thing is whether... The uh, throwing the birds at her was solely for artistic license to try and make her look as uh, realistically terrified on screen, or whether it was payback that she wasn't interested in doing the wine scene with him. That's uh, that's the real question, honestly. And of course, during that time, I mean, it, 
well, I mean, I think it was during what the sixties, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that they didn't have safety regulations, and they definitely had more safety regulations than 1928. Uh, like, uh, but I'm sure that uh, safety was still a little bit more lax than it is today. Yeah, 1963, I believe. Um, and Tippy's still going strong, I believe, and she's out there on the, the convention circuit, I believe. I've seen her going. So definitely get out there and uh, show us some love, you know what I mean? She went through fucking hard times to bring that movie. Uh, go buy an autograph or something, for sure. Yeah, Hitch was a wild dude, man. Uh, he's a fucking weird dude. I, I, got, I read a couple books. You know, he's a, he don't, he's afraid of the police. I always bring that up. That's funny, you know, but I think everybody kind of gets that kind of fear. If that cop rolls up behind him or something, they kind of get that, ooh, that uneasy feeling because whether you're doing right or wrong, you know, they, you know, it might go wrong no matter what. Um, but yeah, he, he's a very interesting dude and he's got a book called Hitch that was an interesting read on him. And I've seen, I never seen the Hitchcock movie with, um, What's his oh, name? Anthony Hopkins. Hopkins, yeah. I saw the movie. I liked it. Uh, <laughs> actually, I have to say that while I enjoyed the movie, there was one thing that I so was so upset with. Oh yeah. That it, it was a missed opportunity. Now I don't know why the director didn't do this, and if anyone has seen. The movie Hitch, Hitchcock, uh, with Anthony Hopkins playing uh, um, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, is that throughout the entire movie you don't hear the iconic Alfred Hitchcock theme, okay? And of course, since I didn't hear it, I just assumed they didn't have the rights to it. Yeah. Okay. Now, there's a very ending scene where they have. Hitchcock actually, if I remember correctly, talking to the screen, uh, breaking the fourth wall to the audience, okay? And then he turns away, and it's a long shot of him walking back to his house. It's a very nice, nice shot. And they had some music. I forget what the music was, but it was like, you know, music that's very easily forgettable, okay? Music to die to. But but when the credits rolled, they used the uh, Alfred Hitchcock theme music. And I was like, why did you use it at that scene? With, after him doing that talk to the audience and then turning away and walking away, why didn't you use it there? Because that, first of all, not only being iconic for him himself, but yeah. secondly, that's just like how he always, you know, started his... His, his TV show. He talked to the audience and, and, and all that. And I thought that would be a great, you know, ending shot. But for whatever reason, they used the music during the credits, not during that shot, which I thought was a big missed opportunity. Well, I'm sure they would take your criticism well. Uh, they'd probably tell me a fuck up. And give you, <laughs> give you a big movie career. Yeah. Now, Next up, we'll dip into some Charlie's Angels. You know, Charlie Angels, I'm going to be honest with you all out there. I don't think I've ever watched an episode of the show. 
And I never watched, I think I see, I caught like maybe 15, 20, maybe a half hour of one of the movies on like TBS or something like that. You know what I mean? Um, so I, I can't really give too much of an opinion on this one. Of course, you know, the, the great Lucy Liu, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and Bill Murray. Uh, you throw all them into a film together. What do you get? What do you get? You get Charlie's Angels. But you know what else yeah, you yeah. get? Sometimes you get some problems. You know what I mean? You know, like if Billy Murray's in a bad mood. You know, I think we've heard from time to time um, that Billy can be a little rough. Billy can be a little um, intimidating. He can be a little difficult. You know? Yeah, I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean, the thing about old old Bill Murray. I mean, don't get me wrong. I do enjoy him as an actor. I do think he's very talented. Yeah. But um, I mean, if you go and you listen to a lot of other people who worked with him, I mean, you had that long feud with him and Harold Ramis. Uh, he like literally, you know, got a huge uh, altercation with not only Chevy Chase, uh, but also with uh, Richard Dreyfus on What About Bob? I heard Richard Dreyfus was difficult. Um, it, it just could be a matter. And, and Chevy Chase, I mean, he plays a, a, a big kind of a dick. That's his whole deal. Yeah. So I think it's too too much of the the same personality. Well, yeah, I'm, I mean, and, and and the thing is that uh, you can't give uh, old Bill Murray uh, just a walk in the past because you know he himself. I mean, is also he's a very. Uh, uh, I mean, it's like you put a bunch of alpha males in in a room. Right. Every, they're going to, you know, try to up one each other. I think a lot of people with the same personalities clash because yeah. they're all kind of wisecracky, um, kind of take no shit people. You know what I mean? Yeah. You could almost call them like, you know, comedic bad boys. Yeah. In a way. Well, well, I mean, in this case, uh, which I, 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 I saw I, and, and read that an interview about it. Yeah. With, I think it was Lucy Liu who said that, you know, he literally came up to her and says, why are you on this show? Why are you in this film? You can't act. You have no talent and, and all that. Now, I personally have always been a Lucy Liu fan. I, yeah. I, I loved her in Ally McBeal and, you know, more recently, Elementary. She's a very talented actress. Now, I I wouldn't be surprised if Bill Murray, for whatever reason, came in in a bad mood, and he wanted to take it out on somebody. And unfortunately, he decided Lucy Liu was that person. And of course, Lucy Liu, I mean, immediately told Murray that she wouldn't be the butt of jokes and disrespected, which, I mean, I definitely agree. And and from what I've read, people rallied against her. Uh, I mean, not against her, her but with her. I uh, rally, Yeah, rallied with her. Sorry, I misspoke there against Bill Murray on that. That's why when they did, you know, Charlie Angel's full throttle, they had Bernie Mac come in playing the Bill Murray role that he had uh had before. And and I mean I don't remember exactly I think I think this might have been right before Rushmore. Yeah. Before yeah. And I think at this time Bill Murray kind of found himself in a rut that he didn't really see his career going anywhere, kind of like in a lull. And you can argue that 
You know, he was upset with where he was at that time. And I'm not giving him any kind of excuse, but he might have just decided to lash out at somebody. And, uh, and like I said, unfortunately it was, uh, Lucy. And, uh, I mean, then, you know, he got into Rush more and then he started doing all those, uh, Paul Anderson movies. And then he kind of got a reason. Rush, mm-hmm. Rush. Uh, Rushmore was two years before this, actually. Oh, two years? Yeah. Okay. Wes Anderson. Anderson. Again, my mistake. I thought maybe, or maybe he thought he was getting back in line that he deserved a bigger role or a better role than he got on Charlie's Angels. And, you know, he decided to take it out on Lucy either way. I mean, the thing is, we've all been on sets, and whether we work with people that we think are... You know, as good as us, better than us, or worse than us, I mean, the big thing on any set is respect, Mm. okay? Uh, You don't have to be best friends. You don't have to go out, have drinks with people afterwards, but you got to respect them, okay? Especially if you guys are all going and working on the same goal. So, I mean, that was definitely not cool of Bill, and, and I'm... I'm I'm happy that Lucy uh, found support and that uh, you know she didn't take it lying down as no one should. No one should ever feel bad uh, working on a set ever, in my opinion. I'm with you. I, I agree with Lu- Lucy Liu on this one. You know, not even the Kubrick deal with with Duvall. I felt like there was an like artistically. I think he was they were going for something. You know what I mean. But this is just kind of fucking just him being a dickhead, really, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah I mean, it wasn't Bill even Bill like, Murray. I mean... Very yeah, sad he, to have to hate on Bill Murray. Yeah, I mean, you can't even give him the excuse that he was trying to get her to a special place just so she could, you know, perform her role. She it was just... He was just being... Lifts, and, right? What? They were all strong female presences, right? That's... That yeah. Was, so you're gonna to want to uplift them and give them confidence and build, yeah. you know, and build it up, not fucking be a dickhead. Yeah, I mean, it's Charlie's Angels, not uh, the Bosley show. So, you know, that's the character he played, Bosley. And Bosley? Yeah, I never got down with Bosley, but I heard he's all right through you, right? You like him? <laughs> yeah, right. All right. So, uh, yeah, she told him she wouldn't, uh, uh, not, she didn't want to be the butt of the jokes and be disrespected and all that stuff. And it's like, and Murray was just recently in the fucking media, I believe, saying something crazy on set and either getting tossed off or yeah. something and, wild like that. And it was funny because, um, uh, that I saw an interview, not, not what happened, but, um, it, because I, when you're dealing with people, some people, you know, are the same forever. Other people try to grow and try to mature. Now, there was an interview with Bill Murray shortly after that incident yeah. where they talked to him and he said that, you know, he made a joke, he thought it was funny, and unfortunately it was taken the wrong way. And uh, he said that he realized that he has to rethink and relook at how he, you know, portrays himself because... The old adage, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. He doesn't want that to be him. So he's trying to teach himself to rethink how, you know, how he jokes around, how he plays on set. 
And I think that's a very mature way of trying to look at it. Um, I think, I mean, if what he said is true and he's not just trying to uh, pander to the audience, is the fact that it's showing that he's trying to... And, and I do believe it's true for the simple fact that he even went uh, and, and, and he buried the hatchet with Harold Ramis before he passed away. I do think that Bill Murray is trying to change some bad habits. We can always argue that it's a bit late. I mean, that, you know, but I do believe that it's never too late to learn and try to change your behavior. It does not excuse what you did before, but it might make a better future. Yeah, I kind of wish I knew what was said or what the, what the joke was, because, I mean, it could be... It could be something bad. It could be something like took and wrong. It could be really anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. You figure he's been making movies, what, 40 years? That he he fucking, you know, each set, I'm sure he tells the same jokes and shit like that. You know what I mean? I'm sure like he's acquired an array of, you know, humor on set humor. Harold Ramis is coming through me, excuse me, uh, to tell you guys that he, he, he uh, his, his humor is, he brings the same jokes to every set. That's what the real beef with him and Harold Ramis was. <laughs> and Bill, get some new material, dude, and for, in, in front of everybody. And from that point forward, there was a gigantic grudge. Next up, the big Mac Daddy of darkest things on set. You know, one of the darkest and um, notorious of all crazy things to happen on set, the Twilight Zone movie. You know, never been a documentary about this. <clears throat> there is a book called Special Effects out there that I got. It's more of like a, more of like a, uh, about the trial. And John Landis, film director from like American Werewolf in London, Animal House, and the Blues Brothers. You know, uh, this was a. Steven Spielberg produced film, The Twilight Zone, and Landis was doing a segment. It was like a, about a racist dude who kind of time jumps and all the people that he's racist towards and has hate towards, he has to kind of go live in their shoes and see what it's like to be fucking like hunted down and stuff. And uh, within the shooting of it, there was a scene of a helicopter come in the scene. It was during the Vietnam scene, I think. And, um, you know, the helicopter fucking went, got too close to the, too close to the water. And, uh, it like went, it went in and the, the, the blade came around and it killed the, the fucking, one of the stars of the movie and two kids that he was holding. And if, I mean, the, the super tragic stuff, the big deal, um, law wise behind the scene with, for the reason for the trial and the, the book and stuff. Was it like the kids weren't supposed to be there? It was like a late night shoot. So it had all this deal to it, that whole deal to it too. So like uh, a hor- horrifying thing. Um, there was a picture floating around out there. I mean, you can go watch the, you can go watch the, the different camera angles because there was multiple camera angles. You don't really see too much. You just see some, you see like, it's one of those now you're here, now you're not type deals because it's just a blade uh, coming down super quick. But, like, there's a picture of them all alive, and uh, it's, like, him holding the kids or something or just the kids standing next to each other. 
<clears throat> and like the kid, the look on the kids' fa- faces is pretty creepy. That always I remember stuck with me. It's almost like they had a feeling like something was up. And that was back at a time. Even now, I guess it'd still be the same way. Where like kids don't might not even want to be actors. They're just like, "Hey, you're cute. Get in front of a camera, make us some money." Type deal. You know what I mean? I always wanted to be a famous actor, and I didn't do it. So now you're gonna have to do it. I'm gonna live through you. Type stuff. For whatever reason, people put their kids into uh, the acting world, other than being, of course, just wanting the best for them. There are some good ones out there that do that, I assume. But, uh, yeah, so these kids got blended up with Vic Moreau, who was the dude that uh, was starring in it. Now, he had a crazy deal, too, where he was, like, on a he was on a show, I think, Combat, and then he had issues. I think he liked to drink a little too much, and... Uh, he kind of his career kind of went a little down and then he got booked on this and it was his big comeback so to speak and i remember supposedly he called up his his agent there his manager or whatever and uh was like i don't really want to do this stunt i got a bad feeling about it and the guy was like are you ready to start turning you start turning jobs down now knowing the bad place he was in and he was like i guess not and uh ended up going out there and dying but it's wild, dude. It's a the whole deal is pretty crazy. The trial is wild with Landis. You know, Landis was either came off wrong or was painted in a bad picture. But like, yeah, I don't know what the deal is with Landis. I try not to get too hard on him. He doesn't come off good in it. Um, but yeah, it's like a crazy deal. His career kind of. It, it, that was the the peak of his career, you know what I mean? Like he was at the fucking top. I think he did a couple other big things after that from the momentum of what he already done. But then he kind of fizzled out, you know what I mean? I always enjoyed his films. I, I wish he didn't fizzle out, you know what I mean? But the heaviness of that situation could have been. It might have took her a little bit, but that could have been what kind of finished him up. What, what's your knowledge of the Twilight Zone deal? Well, I mean, the thing is from, I mean, the different interviews and different things I've seen, um, the thing is there was a lot of corners cut. And, I mean, mean, Matt and I know, I mean, being independent filmmakers, uh, we don't have the money to do a lot of the uh, big things. So, I mean, we try to cut corners. We try to uh, do things as as cheap and and, as easy as possible. Never like that, though. Huh? It, it was, before, I know, you know, never like that because when life's around the line, I guess it's easier to say, you know, when you know. Yeah, I, 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 dude, I know. I'm, I'm oh. trying to get to a point here, dude. <laughs> I get to the point, motherfucker. Okay, I'm trying to get to the point. I, and, and, and but, but, <clears throat> but, even though we do that, safety yeah. is number one. I mean, you can't skimp on safety, and now you have the Twilight movie, which has so much money behind it. Multiple well-known directors, a lot of money on the line, where they have no excuse. Mm. I mean, not saying anyone has an excuse to skimp on safety, but when you have a big-budget movie like that, with all the resources that they have, with the name talent that they have, that things like this should never happen, okay? Now, yeah, there are mistakes that happen, unfortunately, and we've covered a lot of them. Uh, but this is by far the worst case, and the only case I can think of at this time that it was solely negligence why these three people died. It wasn't like 
they miscalculated. Uh, you know, they're doing the scene with the shark, and the shark get, uh, ends up killing a stuntman, right. or anything like that, or like you know, a freak accident with a gun, like in The Crow. This was where you had, you know, a director cutting edges when he shouldn't have been cutting edges. And because of that, you know, the most worst thing that could ever happen on set happened. And now, yeah, I enjoy John Landis' movies. I do not like him because of this situation, because it was obvious that he took the shortcut and because of that, three people died. And of course, you know, I don't think he really, you know, got any big uh, punishment from that, from my from my memory. And because of all his connections, I think he just got a slap on the wrist. But there, out of every tragedy, there is a positive, and the positive is, as I was talking about earlier, when we were talking about Noah's flood. And, and, and the other things where people have either died or get severely hurt on set. Um, Twilight Zone in 1983, because of what happened, really ended up enforcing and, and having a, a big bump in safety regulations in yeah. big budget films. And like I said, it is horrendous and it's horrible that three people died to ha- force this to happen. But it did. And even today, I mean, you can't 100% guarantee that someone isn't going to be hurt or killed in in the movie, especially when you're doing all, with all these big explosions and you're dealing with a lot of dangerous stuff. But safety, whether you're doing independent film or whether you're doing a big budget film, always has to be number one. Right. And I've been on sets, okay, where, you know, it's obvious that someone, uh, like, someone in charge, you know, doesn't want to wait around. They, like, we're burning daylight, just keep moving, and they don't want to, you know, wait around and do all the safety precautions. Now, luckily, I haven't been on one of those sets for, uh, for quite a few years. Um, but, you know, that's why I don't work with that person <laughs> ever again. Yeah. But, Here's the thing, that when it comes to safety, safety should be number one. And, and yeah, it'll take time, and, but it is necessary. And if, if it's not a safe set, if you see something that's going on that, that speaks to you as being unsafe, no matter what, I say leave. Okay? Because, uh, we all love making movies. We all love making art, but no, no movie is worth your life. For sure. Yeah, yeah I um, and that ends my TED talk. That's <laughs> all good. I um, I'm still, I'm still a big fan of John Landis's films and John Landis the person. I just think that it was a terrible situation. I don't think he handled it right. Um, I don't think he looked right in the situation, whether that somebody took advantage, you know, he doesn't come off well, you know, when he, when you watch the new stuff, he comes off really bad. You know what I mean? Like I'm a big fan of him. Uh, and it's a very unfortunate event. Um, but I don't know if it's the media or, or getting him or if he was really coming off that bad, but, uh, he was probably under some stress. I can't hate on him. He's probably under some serious stress. 
but uh, yeah, it's weird. I won't. I won't defend him. I'm, I'm fucking ashamed of myself for offending this dude almost because he ain't never. I actually met him once. And it was probably one of the most nervous I've ever been meeting somebody. Gigantic fan of his films, Rock and Shock, in my 20s, probably, mid-20s or so. Um, very beautiful. I have a weird picture of it. It's uh, Somebody took it. Somebody took it for, like, with us standing at the table. It's weird. It's a weird picture. Very unfortunate. Um, but you know it's even more unfortunate? The Passion of the Christ, man. The greatest yeah. horror story of them all. Uh, Jesus gotten sliced and diced up, put up there for everybody's sins. Um, now, The Passion of the Christ. Um, have you seen The Passion of the Christ? Um, No. No, I have not actually seen the movie. Yeah. Um, I have to say that... Um, yeah, I, it, It's funny. I mean, growing up... Um, uh, Catholic and all that. I, I stay away from, quote, unquote, um, biblical movies. Uh, and I think I saw, like, um, Charlton Heston's Ten Commandments. And, uh, that's about it because I had to watch it in school. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing is that when you're doing a film that's based on, I mean, not, it, it's supposed to be, and, uh, we know that in history there was someone called Jesus Christ that, and some of the history is, is truth. Of course, how much of it is, is the big question. And of course you have a lot of, uh, people's believing, you know, what is written in the Bible is like a hundred percent accurate. And of course the thing is that you can't really say, especially since, you know, you've got, uh, how many people writing it, rewriting it, translating it from Latin to English and vice versa. Now, I mean, with the Passion of the Christ, um, now I, uh, I know that, uh, like, uh, Jim Cavizel, Ke- I, I don't know if that's saying his name correctly, oh. but, uh, he played Jesus and he was actually struck by lightning, uh, once. Uh, he, of course, walked away, uh, fine. But there was a lot of other kind of weird things that happened on set, natural disasters and uh, and other unfortunate things uh, that kind of plagued the movie. Yeah. And and it's it's kind of like the same thing as we talked about with The Exorcist when when you're dealing with a subject matter that is either controversial or dealing with a subject that people might find you know, a little touchy. I mean, when you, you're dealing a, a, about a movie that's based on a character that is a, a person that is behind uh, one of the biggest uh, religions that in, in the world right now, that... The Hawk religion? <laughs> you, you can definitely uh, wonder that if any little thing, like, you know, someone getting a hangnail is, oh my god, uh, God's unhappy with how the film's going, and that's why you got the hangnail. Um, it could very simply be just like, uh, uh, you know, just making any movie. There's always things that go wrong. Um, and sometimes odd coincidences are just that, odd coincidences. Uh, but uh, it's one of those things that... Uh, 
I I never had an interest to watch the movie uh, because I mean I I went to Catholic school. I did Sunday school. I you know read read the Bible, went to church, and all that. And after all those years of doing that and growing up and going to a Catholic, you know, grammar school and then went to Catholic university, I've kind of come to the conclusion that, uh, yeah, the, the, the Bible and like any other religions, and it's, it's another place where people can try to control what you do and what you think. And, uh, and the fact is that uh, making a, a movie about uh, about Jesus Christ, yeah, you're going to piss off a lot of people, whether it's it's uh, in the real world or in in the spiritual world, if there is such a thing. So, I I wouldn't be surprised that if if there was a God and he was a little upset with uh, with uh, Jim's uh, portrayal, he might throw down a lightning bolt to try and make him act right. I hear you, man. There's, um, I remember I seen it because, of the, you know, like I said before the show, that the, the, the religious family. So it was like a big deal. When this movie came out, this was a big deal. This is one of those movies that even the church folk would even tell you. You know, th- this film was a weird, almost apocalypse now-ish type vibe, too, where I guess nobody gave Mel Gibson faith, so he took a lot of his, his own money to make it or something like that. And the movie's actually pretty good. It's It's, it's, you know, even if, you know, however you want to take it in, it's super gory at parts. You know, there's there's uh, depictions of the devil that are pretty creepy that I still kind of stick in my head to this day. You know what I mean? Maybe it's because I have kind of a history with the story. Um, but I think it's pretty, you know, good for what it is. It's funny that the, the passion of the Christ, I think, I lent that out to a Christian gentleman. And doggone it, he stole that movie. I never got it back. <laughs> you know what I mean? His name was Da. He was a Da the Kung Fu Hillbilly. So I guess I can't hold it hold hold it against the Christian folks because he was Kung Fu Hillbilly and around. He was a dude I did const- that was his nickname. And uh he did const- before I came into the picture. <laughs> and uh he he worked construction and I worked there with him and yeah, it was around the time that, that came out, I let him borrow it up and Hee-haw! He was fucking gone with the wind. But you should check out The Passion just because. It's funky. It's funky. Just like I tell people, if you like horror movies, you like horror books, read Revelations in the Bible. It's one big horror movie. Yeah. Yeah. Next up, let's collect these rings, baby. I assume somebody died on Lord of the Rings, but I didn't know the story. Um, Actually... Not that I can think of. I mean, the thing that it, it references here is um, uh, there's uh, there's uh, there's multiple incidents of definitely uh, people getting hurt. Um, uh, for a case, um, Sean Astin, who played Samwise Gamgee, um, oh. you've seen Lord of the Rings, right, dude? Yeah, I was talking about the dude that was going to play Elijah Wood's part. And then Elijah would replace them. That's that was the first death that started off. Oh, he. Oh, I didn't even know that one. That uh, that's. Uh, I don't know what the dudes. I'm sure there was somebody. So rest in peace. <laughs> well, I know that uh, Viggo Mortensen replaced Stuart Townsend 
who was originally cast as as uh, Aragon, but uh, after shooting a few days with him, uh, Peter Jackson realized he was too young and wasn't right in the role, so they um, they outed him and they brought in Vigo to take over the role. Gave Vigo a career, pretty much. Yeah. And Vigo's well, trying, I, mean, I like the, Vigo. Well, I mean, the thing is, Vigo always had a career. I mean, you sit down and look at he was in G.I. Jane, he was in Daylight, he was in a lot of movies uh, before, but never, like, um, big, like, main roles. Always kind of side-supporting. So, I mean, yeah, Lord of the Rings was the thing that really put him in leading man status. Um, but, uh, anyway, going with um, Sean Astin, there's a point where he runs into the water after Frodo, and unfortunately, I mean, Safety regulations, people try to patrol the set, make sure there's nothing dangerous, but sometimes things are missed, and uh, Sean Astin, unfortunately, stepped on the shard of glass. Ah, that was, done that. That was in, yeah, that was in, in the water, and had to be flown out and get a few stitches. Oof, that makes my, my, that makes my uh, down below tingle when I think yeah. of that. I, I got it. I've had two horrifying things happen to my feet. I got I stepped on a piece of glass and fucking mutilated me up. And then I once I, I hit the bottom of a, um, like a rolling chair and it flipped my toenail sideways. Yeah. Ooh. So I hope I got some undercarriages tingling with those stories. Yeah. But, but I mean, not only uh, with that, you also had like uh, going back to Vigo, there's a point in, um, where uh, he uh, thinks that uh, Mary and Pippin are dead. And he goes and he kicks a helmet and then he, you know, collapses, you know, screaming in frustration. And the fact is, he actually broke his toe while kicking that helmet. So he took that and, and really uh, brought that into the scene. But um, the uh, guy who played, um, uh, not uh, John Rice Davies, but the, uh, the guy who uh, was the uh, little person that was in the father shots that played Gimli. When yeah. you had all three of them together, he ended up having, I think, bruised ribs at one point. And I think, uh, I think Leg, uh, like Orlando Bloom hurt himself too. So you have all three of these guys, you know, running, trying to, you know, track the orcs all the time, you know, with various in- injuries that had happened to him. So, you know, I mean, things happen like that on set. I mean, the, the fact is, as long as, you have a safety conscious crew that comes in and makes sure that they take care of the issue when it happens. Uh, then it's then it's good. You just roll with the punches. I believe that. That's the best way to roll with the men. Yeah, uh, movies so massive. What about what the Hobbit movies? Were there like six, six or nine of those, or something like that? Well, uh, total, yeah. I mean, well, there's six. Uh, I mean, six if you count the three Hobbit movies and the three Lord of the Rings movies. I think they're doing a prequel TV series right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, the fact is that the the, uh, the Lord of the Rings movies are are epic and great, and I I don't want to you know crap on the the Hobbit three movies, but the fact was, I think that they uh, they had uh, Guelmo del Toro was supposed to direct them. He then left the project for some reason, and then you know Peter Jackson came in. So you already had 
a thing that was already cast. And, of course, everyone was like, hey, let's make this like uh, Lord of the Rings. Let's make three movies out of it. And the fact is, The Hobbit should have been only one movie. Because trying to stretch it over three movies, I thought, was a little a little too much. I'm with you, man. No, don't get yourself unchained. We're going to pop into some Django Unchained. Uh, uh, Leo comes back into the party because he's such a bad man with Jamma and always got himself caught up in some dark, secret shit. Um, Django Unchained, I, big, I'm a big fan of it right off the bat. You know, there was a time when I thought the EQT might have been, you know, slowing down a little bit. I think he did. I wasn't a gigantic fan of Inglorious Bastards. I liked the half with like uh, Brad Pitt and his crew going out there. I enjoyed that. But once it hit the theater type aspect, it slowed down a little bit for me. And then uh, before that, I believe it was Death Proof, which I appreciate more now. But at the time, I thought was a I wasn't really digging it. But you got to take into consideration it was part of the old uh, double feature deal, Grantos. But when when Django hit the screen, which I remember I went to go see Christmas Day, I believe it was, when when he was dropping movies on Christmas. And I was really blown away at how great this one was. I was like, oh, he's back in the saddle again. And I uh, really loved it. And DiCaprio is a dude that I appreciate a lot. And a lot of people kind of give him hard times. Don't think he really transforms much. And he does a little bit. I'll give oh, him whoa, that. Whoa, hold on. Wait, wait. Are you talking about Leonardo DiCaprio? Yeah, I'm talking about Leo DiCaprio up in this mother trucker, dude. You know, he's sitting back right now, uh, living a life that you want to live, going Alexander Hawk and laughing and taking a big cigarette haul. And he blows yeah, well, that I mean, g- g- good for him. I mean, heck, he's been able to, you know, ride that gravy train uh, uh, his entire life. Hey, uh, good for him. More power to him. I mean, heck, um, Actually, uh, it's funny going on with what we were talking about, you know, onset accents and all that. Old uh, Leo actually uh, showed a little bit more acting chops that I have to give him credit for, where he broke a, a glass on set and actually started bleeding, but he kept on going, which, which you know, some lesser actors might, you know, stop and say, hey, this take care of my hand to stop this bleeding, but... um. He Very kept Martin on going. Like, yeah, because that's what I, apocalypse. He cut himself on the mirror punch, drinking and drinking yeah. and punching, always getting in trouble. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it's, I mean, you can, I mean, for example, like I said, with uh, with uh, Vigo kicking the helmet and and using that in the scene. I mean, Leo also did the same thing with breaking the glass and used that also in the scene that really. You know, gave a lot more, you know, uh, credence to his portrayal of the character, which, you know, I appreciate. I mean, I'll always be a first one. I, I'm not a huge Leo fan. Um, I don't think he ever, I, I think a lot of people give him more credit than he deserves. But then again, I feel the same way about Tom Cruise. So. Tom Cruise is all right in my book, too. So the fact that he cut his hand and kept going, I always give him big kudos for. Because if I cut my hand, I, I it time He'll slows down. He'll cry like a baby. I cry He'll like cry. a baby. Time slows down, and I don't do nothing. By the time that, that, that it hits to where it starts, to where it ends, 
times you go into a different dimension. You know what I mean? You're not I, even I have anymore. to you cradle his head and, and rock him to sleep and say, it'll be okay, big boy. It'll be okay. Don't worry about it. And you slam it down and can see that he's looking – He's looking at it. He's deep in the character is what I'm saying is I appreciate about it because, you know, you, I think you slammed a shot glass down or something. Yeah. And the, the sh- realistically, doing what he did could cause some serious fucking issue. Could be a real issue. And the fact that he kept going through it, like I, if I was directing it and the actor did it, I wouldn't fucking be mad at the dude for stopping because that's hard. That's harsh. That's that's fucking tough times. Now, didn't he rub it on some girl's face or something? With yeah, that? I, 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 I think the actress who played uh, Jamie uh, Foxx's uh, uh, wife's character, uh, character, I forget the actress's name, but uh, yeah, I think he went, he, he like rubbed his blood on her forehead, which, you know, really adds to the scene and really, you know, makes him more of a, a creep then, you know, we already knew he was from the beginning. Mr. Candy? But, I really like that character. I think Mr. That's Candy! One of his portrayals for, in, his, in his array of characters, I really think that's one of his best portrayals. He plays it so, he's so terrible and awful, but like, you know, the best awful characters are the ones that go about it, not not realizing that they're that awful, you know what I mean? Um so I give Leo kudos, you know what I mean, all as well. I know you're just upset because you guys were always up for the same roles and he beat you out, but you shouldn't hate a man over that, Alex. You know what I mean? Hey, I don't hate the man. I just I just think that uh, he gets a little bit uh, more credit than, and than he deserves. I think yeah. he's a decent actor, but I don't think he's a great actor. Unfortunately, that happens all the time. Um you know, he's, uh, the blood thing's interesting. Must definitely pre-COVID, of course, the sign of the movie right there. Um, nowadays, I'd be assault, you know what I mean? Uh, rightfully so. I don't want no blood on me. I don't care. I don't care if your blood's strained every weekend and uh, put fresh blood in you. I don't want that shit all over me. Uh, I'm curious of her opinion. I think it was one of those, you smile and just say, okay, we're doing something special here. Um, very interesting. Very interesting stuff. The blood part, I knew about the glass. I knew about the glass breaking and him continuing to go, but the blood on her was something that was kind of new to me. Now we got, we're going to take a space odyssey with everybody real quick. And uh, 2001, another Kubrick film comes into the mix. You know what I mean? Um, and this one is, you know, some people say this is his masterpiece. Like some people say 2001 is his real achievement in filmmaking because of the mixture of the effects and the story and it's just so and when it hit you know it was like the acid generation so it was like the perfect movie to see perfect audience to see um this film you know what i mean yeah um now with Kube, you know kind of the one with this is uh it's not really kind of a dark secret i don't really feel um well, I mean, I mean, it's it's yeah, it's not a dark secret, but it's an interesting one, and you can speculate on the reasons behind it. But uh, Stanley Kubrick made a uh, point to destroy nearly all the props and sets from 2001: The Space Odyssey. I mean, you can either argue that he didn't want it to become commercialized, you know, like you know, props being sold. Uh, sold off and 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 all that even though there was uh, 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 an effort to preserve a piece of cinematic history that spent nearly th- uh, 300 
and $50,000 to buy one of the spaceship props. But, I mean, you can probably... Knowing Kubrick, I wouldn't be surprised if the reason he went around and made sure that he destroyed everything was was the fact to try to make it as as kind of like you can't... Because you have so many people who are a huge fan of Stanley Kubrick and his films that, you know, love to collect memorabilia, love to have a piece of uh, uh, film history. And whenever Stanley Kubrick did a film, it became part of film history. And he obviously knew, and as everyone else did, that 2001 was going to be a very special film in his, you know, uh, legacy. And he might have uh, considered that... uh, that he didn't want uh, people just buying and selling pieces like uh, just the like uh, a commercial. He used like one of his props as like a conversation piece, like uh, a side table next to uh, next to yeah your, your bar or something like that. So I mean that might be a reason why he did that, or maybe there's something else a deeper reason. Well, I, I've I've read a lot on the Coop because I'm a big fan and. From what I gather from him, what I would assume, it could be one of two things. Uh, the the, uh, the, fir- the first one will be the more the more out there of the ideas. There's not so much out there, but I could almost see Kubrick taking the actual props and put them in storage somewhere, and like having just showing the remains of destroyed stuff because he'd want to keep it for himself because he archived a lot of stuff. Uh, and more, and what I what I really think it is is I think that Kubrick was a big, I think he was he was he, like when they they went to go remake they went to go do a sequel of this he wrote a letter to the director telling him not to fuck with it so what I think they did is he put so much time and effort because he was very hands on creating these spaceships I think that he, if he left them behind it would be it would be in every science fiction movie you've seen coming out from that company. You know what I mean? So I think in a way he, to preserve the look and uniqueness of his film, he destroyed all the shit. So you won't see it pop up in, you know, whatever other science fiction movies MGM's making that, that summer or that year or whatever, because realistically they would have reused those things because it was nominated. It was nominated for its special effects and this and all that space stuff. You know what I mean? As well as you know, of course, the moon landing was faked with Kubrick's 2001. <laughs> so that was the real reason why they burnt all the shit. Uh-huh. Uh, Kubrick yeah. was, I, you know, it's possible, you know, that uh, I think it's highly possible that the, him destroying all that shit because he just didn't want anybody uh, fucking with it. Which I don't blame him, you know what I mean. But I think it's mainly because he didn't want anybody making other movies with it, which they would have done. Um, as far as like, I think he'd be kind of cool with fans having it if it was something that he didn't really want. You know what I mean? Uh, I feel like I'd rather have like if it was something of mine that a fan cared to have or something, I'd rather let them have it type deal. If it wasn't something like I, I personally wanted to keep around, but I think it's more of a business deal. And Kubrick was like very. He was the even in his time he was the king. So like, if people could say, okay, well we took this and we did that. Uh, they'd do it for sure. You know, now you're looking at realistically, that's half the movie, a lot of that spaceship uh, stuff. So like if you had that, you could easily do a sequel without him. I know he was very prone and upset about the idea of uh, another sequel, but the matrix, which would have been a cool fucking Kubrick film. 
you know, that had all the crazy madness of going in. Big fucking special effects movie. Changed film for a bit. Uh, but while filming The Matrix, Carrie and Moss twisted her ankle. She didn't tell anyone until filming wrapped, fearing she'd be recast. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that, um, I mean, Carrie Ann Moss, I mean, she's, uh, she's Canadian. She was born in Canada, I believe. Right. And I do believe that she has had a career before The Matrix in Canada, but The Matrix was the first big thing for her in the States. So, I mean, so she was a big name commodity. And, and the fact is that, you know, there was a lot hanging on, on the film. So it is possible that if she made a comment about her twisting her ankle, that, I mean, depending on how the director felt, he might have said, well, we need to keep going. Uh, we'll just reshoot, uh, the, the few scenes we've done with you with a different actress. I, I mean, uh, depending on, uh, the people in charge. I mean, for example, like you had, uh, as we talked about, Sean Aston hurting himself and they flew him out and, and banded him. But he was a bigger name than uh, Carrie Ann Moss, uh, definitely when he was doing Lord of the Rings, than she was doing The Matrix. So, I mean, I would like to think that if she actually twists her ankle, that those on set would take care of the issue and kept her on and wouldn't have, you know, taking the job away from her. But, you know, with uh, Hollywood politics, you're never 100% sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the thing is that, uh, at least from what I've heard, luckily there wasn't any major side effects uh, from her not having it uh, um, uh, looked at by a physician as she was able to either bandage or do what she had to do. So there wasn't any more um, damage to it. Yeah. And my, my, uh, as, as I said before, that, uh, if you hurt yourself on set or there's a safety issue on set, I, I would always be the one to say you should speak up and take care of the issue. Right. Um, I would also on the same sides, uh, say that if someone hurts themselves on set, whether it's, uh, their fault or whether it's the studio's fault or, or just how things happen. Okay. You know, um, the way I see it is, you know, you take care of the problem. No one should have to worry about not telling someone in charge about something that, that happened that hurt them. Yeah. Uh, and worry about losing their job or their spot. Right. Uh, again, of course, I mean, I'm not in Hollywood and, when you're dealing with billions upon billions of dollars, I mean, they make uh, last decisions on what they think would save them the most money. Whether it was simply recasting a, a person or whether it was uh, just, uh, you know, bandaging and having the uh, actors keep on going. Yeah, I mean... Because, I'm- yeah, I mean, I mean, if if C kept on going with it and then it ended up being a more serious issue... Then, you know, I mean, I, I'd be, you know, very, I think that'd be very, uh, very sad because, I mean, no one wants to, um, you know, jeopardize your health and well-being, um, you know, when you're trying to either make a living or make art or, or, or doing anything. 
that should not be an either or. It shouldn't be like I if if I go and have myself checked out, I have to worry about not having a job. I, I think that should never be an issue, no matter what job you're doing. Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting to know at what point in the production it happened. Because, I mean, if they were deep into it, then you're pretty safe. But if it's like the first day and she did a somersault type vibe or something and she banged it up, like I could definitely see her at that point being like, I, I'm not, yeah, I'd be like, I ain't talking about this because at that point, possibly they would, you know what I mean? I don't, yeah. it's a twisted ankle, it's not a broken ankle. So you go home, you ice it. You know, uh, you might w- be with you for a couple of days, three, four days, but I, if you can muscle through that, I think she could. It almost kind of makes it sound like it was throughout the whole shoot, which wasn't the case, I don't think. Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, the thing oh, is, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, the thing is that uh, you're right. I mean, and again, if it was a, a sprain, I mean, it was obvious that where it was. I mean, I didn't see any any moments in in the film that would make me think that she uh, she had a sprained ankle or she was in pain during that. Right. But it doesn't mean she wasn't or what point it happened. But yeah, I mean, the fact is that I've I mean I've sprained my ankle. Everyone sprained their ankle, and I know that if you ignore it and just muscle through it. I mean, you can do that for a while, but you have to take care of it at some point because if you just keep on muscling through it, it'll just end up getting a lot worse. Yeah, I'm with you. The shizzle. Uh, we're going to do one more, and then we're going to be gone with the wind for this volume, volume two. Um, we're going to do uh, – we've got a gone with the wind, but we're going to do another – this comes from we – got, we got more gone in the wind in the next volume. But here's a taste. Here's a little taste off the tongue of some, yeah. you know, horrifying garlicky, uh, de- terrible deals of dental hygiene problems. Because little did you know, and there's Gone with the Wind, a movie that people put down on, you know, probably top 10 greatest movies of all time. People loving all that. And what a romance. Clark Gable, you so handsome. Oh, my goodness. The things I've heard Hawk say about Clark Gable, the things he'd <laughs> want to do to him if he was around at that time. Is ungodly, and I don't even want to bring it up uh, in the same episode <laughs> where we talk about the Passion of the Christ, you know what I mean? But yeah. supposedly, in uh, Gone with the Wind, Vivian Lee said she hated kissing Clark Gable uh, because his false teeth, excessive smoking, and a habit of eating garlic before takes. That almost sounds like trying to be a dingleberry. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, now, from my memory, I don't remember... Uh, I, I, if I remember correctly, Clark Gable, uh, in the very beginning, uh, like many struggling actors, uh, wasn't doing very well. And he ended up marrying this woman who actually helped, I think, you know, helped get him new teeth, in this case, wooden teeth, to fix his mess-up smile and um, other things. And and uh, he then became a star after she helped him, and then he decided to cheat on her and try to divorce her and, and all of that. There was a lot of scandals. I mean, there's scandals in Hollywood from the beginning of time. He's kind of a scummy dude. Yeah, he was a scummy dude. Yeah, okay. He always had that look about him as a scummy dude. Like, yeah. like There's something about him. Well, I mean, the thing is, I mean, if any of that was true, I mean, he definitely was a guy who 
had nothing. Uh, a woman helped him get to where he was, and as soon as he started getting all the accolades, he was like, you know, bye, Felicia. And then, you know, he was, you know, moving on with any leading lady he could. And it's obvious, I mean, like you said, uh, with, you know, the uh, uh, the smelling of garlic and, and all that, it's obvious the guy himself uh, was, was a complete asshole. And, and you know, I, I mean, I've only known of people uh, eating garlic and all that and that kind of stuff before kissing scenes to be, as Matt said, a dingleberry. A uh, dingleberry. To make things more difficult. Now, we talked about in the first volume, The Notebook, where you have two people who are supposed to be in love that the actors didn't like each other for whatever reason. And and the fact is, maybe in this case, Clark Gable and Vivian Lee also didn't like each other from the get-go, and Clark Gable decided to be an asshole to, you know, you know keep smoking, keep, you know, doing the garlic to... You know, make the kissing uh, scene uh, scenes more unbearable. Which I mean, I'm kind of like, why do that? I mean, you, you I mean, why do you want to make you know an experience more painful than it has to be? There's no reason for it. Um, I mean, that that's what always pisses me off when you have people that just try to make things more. More complicated, more of a pain in the ass. And it, obviously, I, I think, you know, Clark Gable just, for whatever reason, was like, huh, she has to kiss me, so I'm going to make her, you know, uh, you know, regret every kissing scene that we have to do, which I think is, is stupid, but, yeah. When I, was, fa- yeah. Uh, when I hear false teeth, I get horrified because I feel like, would the, and I've never had false teeth in my mouth, but I wonder if there would be some type of drooling effect because you figure if you have anything in your mouth, it's, your saliva is going to kind of taste it out and feel it out, you know what I mean? So the fact that you'd have to kiss somebody with a mouthful of saliva makes me want to fucking vomit all over my shoes and check fucking cross my name out on that list. I don't care if I'm working with Clark Gable. Tell him I got a fucking stomachache. And it's because of his saliva, and I'm not doing the project. That's uh, the grossest. You know, cigarette smoking, it's just as excessive smoking. You could be smoking crack for all, for all anybody knows, you know what I mean? Uh, Clark Gable, that man was looking for trouble, and trouble done found him. Now, uh, eating garlic before it takes is horrifying, unless it was a medical reason. <laughs> But uh, very fucked up. So we're leaving you all with Gone with the Wind. This was a volume two, The Darkest Onset Secrets. Um, these are fun. We're cruising through. You know what I mean? Uh, hot takes, hot times, doing it big. Got a guest coming up for you guys probably soon, I'd say. Right? Heck yeah. yeah. So hell yeah, I'm the dizzle. And I can tell you one thing. It will not be Clark Gable. That we were going to have them, but I crossed them off the list. I said, yo, I heard about your saliva mouth and garlic breath, and I said, get the fuck out of here with that. Oh, damn, that means I have to put the Ouija board away the, the and all the other other things and the shovels. I was going to dig them up and uh, bring them in, but uh, unfortunately, he's nothing but skin and bones. Wait, 
Actually, no skin, just bones. Hey, now, we really just need the Ouija board. Yeah, that's true. Do it at your house, though. Why my house? I don't want his his stanky ass, you know, haunting my house. We'll do it in the house of all the listeners across all the land. And we'll catch y'all on the next episode of the Boombastic Chaos. Peace. Peace.